Pastor Terry, over the last six weeks, has been talking about uh, seasons of life, talking about our lives as, as they flow, as we age, as different experiences occur. And um, today, I want us to explore a phrase that he used several times in that, and that phrase is, a life worth living. So we're going to look at some aspects of a life worth living today and kick it off with the following video clip. Do you know this man? In the 1800s, he was part of a group that helped found the Church Missionary Society and the first school for poor and orphaned children, which would lead to the idea of public education. He also helped found the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, also known as the SPCA. For much of his life, he argued before lawmakers to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire, a law which Parliament finally passed in 1833 three days before his death. Who is this man? He is William Wilberforce. Now those of you who've heard me speak before know that I really love history. History may put some of you to sleep, but uh, we'll try to make it interesting today. Uh, when you see a picture like that, you just kind of think, what's this going to be about? Um, but I, I really enjoy history and particularly looking at history and reflecting on modern-day culture and seeing what history has to tell us, what legacies or holdovers from history we find today in our culture. And um, last year, I read, uh, actually listened to, a book by a, a gentleman named Eric Metaxas. It's called Amazing Grace, and it's the book upon which the uh, movie last year was based. And um, the book really put a lot of ideas in my mind, and for me, I keep things out there in circulation. And then every once in a while I have an opportunity to use them. So you all today are the recipients of what I've been sitting on for probably uh, almost a year. Now, although William Wilberforce was a contemporary of George Washington and we know a great inspiration to Abraham Lincoln, this weekend we're celebrating their birthdays, but he's largely forgotten. And it's a shame because Wilberforce, as we're going to see today, was a really wonderful example of someone who led a life worth living for God. Now, as we consider this topic in, in light of his life and look at his life, there's a scripture in your handout I want to start with, and this is kind of our guiding scripture for reflection that we can uh, keep minds on. It's from Matthew 6, and it says the following, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then the real, the real kick to the scripture. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is where is our treasure? What things are we treasuring? Now, as I said, William Wilberforce is largely forgotten, although he, he basically changed the world. And you might say, well, I never heard of this guy. You know, how can, how can you say that? Well, before we go there, consider this. This man is, in a sense, an embodiment of the scripture we just read. He was famous and he was known in his lifetime. But you know what? The sands of time, particularly here in America... They've washed away 
anything that Wilberforce did. Today, if you walked up to a person on the street and say, do you know who William Wilberforce is? They'd look at you like, you know. They might look at you anyway like that, but beside the point. <laughs> but what lived on, what we live in today, is the true legacy of his life, the treasure that he laid up in heaven during his lifetime. Now, okay, he changed the world, so what do you mean by that? That's kind of a pretty broad statement. Well, at the time he lived, the time he was born in 1759, and he lived from then until 1833, slavery was an accepted institution in the world. And not only was it accepted, it was, there were many explanations for why it was thoroughly justified, and the entire world economy, dominated by England and large European nations at the time, was based on the concept of slavery, the institution of slavery. So we're not talking here about a few slaves someplace. The whole world economy, picture that, was based on the idea that people needed to be enslaved. And in fact, the view was so pervasive that it was just viewed as part of the natural order that there were slaves in slavery. People didn't really even question it. In fact, people found ways to justify it morally. Now, I know that some forms of slavery exist in the world today. There are sex slaves, there are indentured laborers, there are pockets of other types of slavery that we still read about today in our world. So the idea that slavery has been abolished from the earth doesn't exist, but I'll tell you what does. Most of us, if asked, we find it reprehensible that one person would be in bondage to another, don't we? I mean, the idea that somebody should be enslaved by somebody else, it's just unthinkable nowadays. And that is the legacy of Wilberforce and his colleagues. Now, not only did they change the way we think today, they also did something else that we take for granted. He and his followers are a group of people called the Clapham sect. And mind you, these were no more than a handful of people. They were firm believers living out their faith. They did for the first time something that, again, we take for granted today. That is that they linked their faith and culture. They decided that faith wasn't just something you did in church on Sunday or maybe gathering with you know, other, other believers during the week. Faith was something that you took out your values into the culture in an attempt to really impact that culture. So today, and particularly in a place like San Francisco, we call that having a social conscience. And we can't really imagine a civilized people who don't have a social conscience at their root. And again, particularly in an area like this, social conscience gives rise to people who seek social justice. So in that way that most people don't even realize, they're living out the legacy of William Wilberforce and these people back from the 1800s. And I like the way Eric Metaxas uh, mentions it in his book. It's in your handout there. He says the following. He says, he, William Wilberforce, pulled the world around a corner, and we can't even look back. 
to see where we've come from. We can't even look back because the things that existed then are so foreign to us, they don't really compute. We can't even really quite imagine what it was like to be facing this, this institution of slavery. So what does this man who changed the world, who had a tremendous impact on the way we live, what does he have to, to teach us? What does his life tell us about leading a life worth living? Well, there's two scriptures in your handout. We're not going to cover them in detail. One is from the book of Genesis, the other from the Gospel of Matthew. And they were foundational to Wilberforce. And basically, his life's philosophy was founded on those two scriptures. That all mankind was made in the image of God. And therefore, when God said, love your neighbor, he meant everyone in very real and practical terms. So after William Wilberforce, at the age of 26, gave his life to Christ, he began his life essentially embodied these two principles. Everyone has dignity. Everyone is deserving of receiving God's love through me in very practical terms. Now within his life, as I've studied it over the last year or so, I found three principles regarding a life worth living that are worth exploring. Here's the first one. It always involves God's will. You say, yeah, so what? No brainer. But you know what? How many things do we do in our lifetimes that don't involve God's will that are supposedly in God's name? How many things? Our will a lot of times tends to predominate. And the things we're talking about today have an impact because there are stuff that gets in the way of us figuring out what God's will is or literally living it out. So we say it anyway just to make sure that it reinforces in us that a life worth living always involves God's will. The second uh, principle is that our actions and words do have an impact on the world around us. It's so hard to see that sometimes, isn't it? We think that what we do is so insignificant. We see the forces at work in our society, in our culture, and we just kind of throw up our hands and just say, what difference can I possibly make? And if we look at the life of a man like Wilberforce and his followers, they didn't look at how great the opposition was or what the obstacles were they had to overcome. They pressed forward in what they felt very called to do. And a bunch of people, a literal handful of people, by persevering and believing in that principle, literally changed the world. Just a handful. You want to go back? Go back to the disciples. Jesus' first disciples. There was a handful of people who changed the world. But today we get so overwhelmed. We get caught up in that. We get caught up in that lie that we can't make a difference, and we can. It's, uh, there's, another, there's another quote in your handout there that, um, again, we won't read, but I just for your, your perusal later. It's from the uh, famous uh, Methodist preacher John Wesley, to Wilberforce, and essentially Wesley tells Wilberforce, the task is so big, this thing you're fighting against is so pervasive, so strong, that unless God is with you, I can't see any way you're going to prevail. 
And that's, that's still true for us today. That's why we talk about being in God's will. Because the obstacles, there's no obstacle too great, no task too large that God cannot perform. The third point and the one where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning on is this, the third principle. Distractions and temptations of life can ensnare us or imprison us in trying to lead a life worth living. Now, when we hear the word temptation, most of us have been around the church say, well, yeah, I, I, I have a pretty good idea what that is. That's stuff involving sin, that word sin. And that's, you know, immorality, addictions, greed, lust, stealing, cheating. We have a pretty good idea what those things are, don't we? The bad stuff, okay? Most of them know what the bad stuff is. And you know what? If we talked about it, we'd say, you know what? Yeah, of course, if I do bad stuff against God's will, then of course I'm not going to be in His will. Of course I'm not going to proceed with where God's calling me to be. But they're still there, just so I, and I, I put them out just so we remember that. But that's pretty much a given. I think most of us would agree on that point. We don't have really a lot of difficulty. It's the distractions that are the things that come in and derail us. The distractions. Now, what are some of those? What do I mean by distractions? How about things like uh, work? Well, I got to have a job. I got to eat. Yeah. I'm called to do this thing. I'm a high-powered professional, or I'm really good in my field. Yeah. So am I. Do we let people whose lives are focused exclusively on their job begin to dominate and influence us to how we see our job? It's really easy, particularly when you're younger. You get caught up in the workplace. Everybody's doing it. Everybody puts in these hours. Everybody does all of these things. I have to do that if I want to be meaningful, if I want to get ahead, if I want to, want to, want to, okay? So work can be a great temptation, or sorry, a great distraction. How about relationships? You're single and you want to mate, it's a good desire to seek one. But does your life revolve around trying to make something happen with people, constantly looking or waiting upon the Lord, connecting with others and being part of a community? Relationships can be a distraction. And it's not just for single people. In the family, if our home does not have some sense of order and purpose, and there's strife. There's, you know, couples fighting with one another, the kids just, you know, constant. So even relationships within the home, we think, well, if you're married, then you got it covered, right? And no, not at all. Relationships can be a distraction if they're not centered in what God is doing. Now, I'm really fortunate. You know, and I don't say this so you can think I'm a great guy or anything, but, you know, I, I've managed to find a place in life where I work. I'm a professional. I'm a consultant. But I work from home. And for many years, the years my wife and I have been in ministry, I've always been what I call bivocational. And I've kept a foot in each world. And one of the things God has given me out of that is I can speak on both sides. 
And so when I come to ministry, I come from the perspective of a working professional, a person with a family and kids. On the other side, as a professional, and I've seen this happen so many times in my consulting, my ministry informs how I treat my clients. And they see that different. They say, how come you do these things? Or, you know, I really enjoy talking with you about these issues. So you sort of become a confessor in some respects, but there, it's a way that both tie together. Both tie together. And Wilberforce is a great example of this too, because when he had his religious experience, his conversion, he decided he wanted to go be a priest. Because that's what you had to do to really follow God, to be a priest. And many of us, you know what? We still have the same attitude today, don't we? Well, I need to go get a seminary degree or be a minister or a pastor to really serve God. No. Fortunately, Wilberforce was talked out of it by some very strong and influential friends. And they said, you know what, William, or actually they called him Wilbur. <laughs> They'd show that in the movie. Wilbur, you need to stay right where you are. God put you in Parliament. God gave you some money and means so that you could do His will right there. God doesn't have to raise up somebody, bring them into parliament to, to affect policy in the country. You're there. That's where God wants you to be. So for many of us, that's the same message. Other distractions. How about being too busy? A lot of nodding heads out there. Busyness is a tremendous distraction. And you know what? We don't stop a lot of times to think about this, but we are in a sense in a culture, quote, war, because the culture wants to just drag us in. Do this. You've got all these opportunities. This is available to you. That's available to you. This other thing. And if you're not taking advantage of them, what kind of a lump are you that you don't take advantage of every single thing life offers you? And I can tell you as a 50-plus-year-old man, there's choices that you leave behind. And it's okay to leave them behind. It's okay. It's okay not to do everything. But we get caught up in busyness. And busyness distracts us. And I would say in our culture here, for our church in this time and place, that's probably the biggest one. We are just so busy. What is it God's up to? Another distraction is misplaced priorities. You know, in a sense, this thing with Wilberforce wanting to be a priest, that was kind of a priority that was misplaced. That wasn't his call. You know, for most of us, misplaced priorities probably involve like recreation and hobbies or things that we do that, that we're focused on. For me, it's golf. You know, I could easily get caught up and, and play, you know, all the time. That would ruin my family life, ruin my ministry life, you know, but sometimes it just seems like the fun thing to do just to forget about the world and just go, you know, play. For some of you, it's, you know, running or bicycling, hiking, camping, you know, there, there's all kinds of things. But misplaced priorities can distract us if they get too large a place in our lives. So I think we get the idea here about distractions, right? Now, the funny thing is about distractions... If I talk to you about sin, immorality, let's take, you know, you know what that is. I know when to see the signs in my life, your life. 
But how about distractions? Most of the time, we don't see them. We don't see them. We're living them out, but we don't see them. Taking Wilberforce as an example and these kinds of things. How many demands do you think? Now, let's forget about for a moment Wilberforce and Parliament. Let's talk about today. Imagine you're a congressperson or your state legislator. How many demands on that person's time do you think there are? How many bribes, now we call them political contributions, I'm not against a process, by the way, but it's human nature to bend the rules, right? Okay? If you take care of this for me, we'll make sure that your candidates are well-funded. No different in, in Wilberforce's time. Bribes, whatever you want to call them. How about people seeking to co-opt you? You don't really quite want to do it that way. You want to introduce this bill? You want to try to do something in, in this ministry? You know, maybe you should try this. Put a little less resistance in there. Come on. You can do it that way. Be co-opted. Think of how many people will go along with you if you make it a little bit easier. You soften your stance. Co-opted. How about fatigue? That's a big one. Most of you 20-somethings don't know about fatigue yet, but trust me. <laughs> That's a factor. Um... I don't ever like to single people out. I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, <laughs> those of you who are here. Uh, but fatigue. Wilberforce and his followers fought 20 years. Lucky for them, there were no term limits, right? 20 years to abolish the slave trade. Another 26 to abolish slavery entirely. So we're talking 46 years staying on point, focused, not being distracted, not losing initiative or heart. Only God can do that. Is there anybody here that really thinks they could last 46 years in anything without God's help? <laughs> see, when you think about it like that, it makes perfect sense, does it? But see, that's the problem. The distractions, they don't let us think like that. They keep us from thinking very often about things just like this. So as we, as we wrap it up today, I want to leave you with, um, with something, tell you a little bit of a story that, that's right in line with this. And it's from a movie called The Mission. And uh, I was thinking the other day, I was thinking a movie, and I thought I better call it an old movie because it was actually released, uh, you guys are going to get me again, 22 years ago. So I can actually remember when it came out in the theaters. Um, and there's a scene in this movie that just goes right to the heart of what we're talking about today. There's an emissary been sent to South America to mediate a dispute between two very powerful European countries. And the emissary knows he's walking right into the balance with a lot at stake. And he also, in the midst of doing his, quote, examination, he knows what's right. And the movie does a great job of portraying the building knowledge in this man. And somebody asked him, well, what will you do? And he says, of course, as my conscience dictates. 
Well, they, you know, there's no doubt what his conscience is saying as you see the movie. There's no doubt that he knows what is right. And yet, when it comes down to it, when he has to make the decision, he decides against his conscience. So the scene I'm thinking about opens. And here is the emissary sitting at a table with the two ambassadors on either side of him. And, and it's great because they do this, this close-up of him and he's reading a report of what happened, what the consequences of his actions were. There was a massacre, priests were killed, there was all kinds of really horrendous stuff that happened. And he's reading it in horror because he's realizing what it was that his actions wrought. He realized the price that was paid for the, the quote, compromise decision he made. And I think back to Wilberforce and those people. What if they had compromised? What if they had given in? So one of the two ambassadors is sitting there and he looks at him and it's obviously a heavy moment. And there's one of the two is just full of himself and he could care less. You know, too bad if this guy feels that way. That's the way it is. Whereas the other is, is really feeling, you know, empathy. And he's, it's a heavy moment. So he tries to take some air out of the situation and he tells, the, he tells the emissary, he says the following, he says, We had no alternative, your eminence. We must work in the world. And the world is thus. How about us? We must live in the world. Hey, that's the way it is. These injustices we see around us, these hurting people, you know, that's the way it is. You know, it's our economic system. Uh, you know, it, they're probably on drugs or they probably have this problem, they probably have that problem. You know, we always try to justify. As a people, I'm not accusing any individuals. As a people, we want to justify a way. That's the way the world is. And that's what's the point of this ambassador. Hey, I live in the world, I got to just deal with it. You deal with it. Nothing we can do. And the ambassador in the most powerful scene of the movie, the mediator, they flash in on his face. And he says, no, senor. Thus have we made the world. And then he stops and he says, thus have I made it. Thus have I made it. And as we go away today, reflecting on what it means to lead a life worth living, what is the world we are making? Not Pastor Terry, not you know, all these other people, us, individually, me. What is the world that I'm making? What is my mark for God? Does God have one? Absolutely He has one. Does He have a purpose? Yes, He does. But if we get distracted, if we throw up our hands in the face of opposition, we just say, it's too big, I give up. And that's not what God's heart is. So I want to encourage you with a scripture here you see in your handout from Hebrews 12. As you think about this, as we all think about it, let's read what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, today we've heard of one, haven't we? William Wilberforce and his followers. They're witnesses to the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight, you might as well say every distraction, that slows us down. 
especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance, 46 years in his case, endurance, the race God has set before us. Now in a couple of minutes, we're going to, we're going to complete the service. We're going to finish the service by uh, uh, receiving the offering. The band's going to come back up here, and they're going to do a special song by a well-known musician um, who's no longer with us, Johnny Cash. Now some of you might say, Johnny Cash, man, that's country. Uh, but hang with it. It's a song he, he recorded a few years before his death, and I've listened to a lot of his stuff as he was, as he knew he was dying, he was getting ill, and, and it was really poignant. He wrote about stuff with a depth that was just really amazing. He sang stuff that was really powerful. And this is one of the songs he did, and it's about running, breaking free and running away from a long period of bondage. And those of you who know a little bit about Johnny Cash's history, you know he was in bondage to a lot of stuff. And the song is called Rusty Cage. And as we close, I want to leave you with this thought. How many of us have been kept from knowing and fulfilling God's will by distractions and temptations? And these distractions and temptations have been with us so long that the cage of our confinement is rusted. And today God is calling us to break out of that rusty cage and run. Run to Him. Run to His presence and to the things He has for us.